This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the courts that interpret it. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court correspondent. It's been a huge week at the Supreme Court. Anniversary of Citizens United, anniversary of Roe v. Wade, acceptance of the same-sex marriage cases last week, and thank you to a bad back injury. I missed all of it. But we have on our podcast today two people who were there this week, and they're going to help fill us in on some of the action. In a few minutes, we're going to discuss a case that was argued on Wednesday that considers a challenge to the Fair Housing Act, a crucial civil rights law that barred discrimination in the housing market. But first, we're going to dive into a case that was argued one day earlier on Tuesday. It's called Williams-Uly versus Florida Bar, and it centers on this foundational question. When it comes to the First Amendment, should elected judges be considered regular people or special judicial people, at least when it comes to asking for money? Here's the background. 39 states elect their judges for at least some offices, and 30 of those 39 states have some kind of law or ethics provision that prohibits judicial candidates from personally asking for campaign donations. Now, this is supposed to discourage that awkward practice of judges seeking campaign contributions from those who will argue the case before them or parties who may appear before them. The paradox in Florida is that a judge can't personally ask for a contribution. Her campaign can, however. She can find out who contributed, and she can send a thank you note. In 2009, one Florida lawyer, Linnell Williams-Uly, sent out a mass mailing declaring that she was running for county judge and saying, quote, I want to bring fresh ideas and positive solutions to the judicial bench. She wasn't asking for a lot, contributions of $25, $50, $100, $250, but she did run afoul of the Florida ethics rule. Williams-Uly challenged that rule on free speech grounds, resulting in the case now before the court. Joining me now to discuss the case is Andy Pincus, an attorney with Mayor Brown, LLP, who represented Williams-Uly at the Supreme Court Tuesday. Welcome to Amicus, Andy Pincus. Great to be here. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your client, uh, Linnell Williams-Uly, and the judicial canon that she ran afoul of? Well, she she was a lawyer who felt, as you said, that, that it was time to bring some fresh ideas to the bench. She wasn't part of the legal establishment. So she started to run. And of course, in any kind of campaign, you need money. So in, in this letter introducing herself to people, she talked about uh, her platform and her ideas and why she was running. And at the end, she said, to run a campaign, I need some money. Please contribute. And and that was the problem because Florida has a rule that says that 
judicial candidates may not solicit contributions, period. Now, it's probably important at least to note that Florida's got quite a wondrous history of problems with judicial elections uh, in the 1970s. Can you talk about that for a minute? Well, like many states in both legislatures, executives, and sometimes in the judiciary, unfortunately, there can be instances of corruption. And so there was uh, an investigation and some corruption found with some Florida judges. But, you know, I, I think it's important to note that the corruption, it won't surprise you to know, was the result of face-to-face dealings between judges or judicial candidates and uh, the people who were trying to influence their decisions through the payment of money. They weren't – no one put up a request on the internet or a billboard saying, please contribute to me and was later charged uh, – found to have engaged in corrupt activity. So that's a great segue to my first question, which is a back and forth between you and Justice Ginsburg on Tuesday where she's trying to understand how do we contain this or constrain this? Is this about face-to-face encounters as opposed to letters? Is this a problem of one mailing as opposed to a mailing to five people? So here's Justice Ginsburg. Let's play it for you. I want to understand your view of the scope of the First Amendment in relation to the selection of the election of judges? I think a state could adopt a prophylactic rule prohibiting face-to-face solicitation, certainly one-on-one solicitation, and perhaps, as some states have done, solicitations in larger groups. There might be some applications of that rule that uh, were uh, — that made that rule invalid as applied. For example, a face-to-face solicitation of one's relatives that have nothing to do with the judicial system and the stated issue. But I think the First Amendment would certainly allow the adoption of that sort of rule. But the, the First Amendment would not allow that for the candidate for political office. Exactly. So you are making it — you are recognizing that there's a difference between judicial office, that the First Amendment allows the state to do things with respect to the election of judges that it wouldn't allow them to do with respect to the election of members of the legislature. So my question for you, Andy, is how do you draw the distinction, if you're the Supreme Court, between the speech we allow people just seeking regular legislative office and folks seeking a judicial post? Well, I I think... In both situations, we have some concerns that are the same. We don't want corruption in our elected state legislatures or governors any more than we want it in our judges. And we also don't want people to feel coerced, right? We don't want people to feel that they have to give whether they want to or not. And then with judges, we have a third consideration because unlike legislators and people in the executive branch, judges are supposed to be impartial. So the question is, how does solicitation of contributions play out against all of those considerations? And I think one first cut to take is written solicitations versus in-person requests where the judge is there with the person being solicited, either in person or on the phone. It seems to me it's very fair and easy to say written solicitations don't carry any of those concerns especially in the Florida system where it's very important to know, first of all, contributions are allowed, but also Florida lets the judge know who's solicited, who gives and who doesn't, and allows the judge to write a thank you note. 
So in terms of the corruption concern, uh, if the judge is going to know who gives and who didn't, the fact that the judge does or doesn't solicit doesn't really make much difference. And I think you can say the same thing with respect to bias. Again, if the judge knows who gives and who doesn't and can write a thank you note, whether or not he or she solicits doesn't seem to have much to do with partiality. And with coercion, again, we're talking about in writing, is someone really going to feel coerced by a written solicitation simply because it's signed by the judge when the judge, regardless of who asks, is going to know who gave and who didn't? It seems to me any coercion that's there is the result of the judges knowing who gave and who didn't, which is true in all cases, not a result of who asks. And so I think it's very hard to say any of the state's interests are furthered in that situation. You know, it's interesting because throughout oral argument, this gets characterized as under the Florida rules, you're allowed to say thank you, but you're not allowed to say please. And that's just kind of an arbitrary line. Is that more or less the gist of, of, of what you're, you were arguing? I think that's right. I think it's an an arbitrary line with respect to the interests that the state's advancing. As I said, the pleas, as, as one of the courts that's ruled on this says, doesn't really seem to add anything to the situation. Well, one of the things I found so interesting about uh, Tuesday's argument was this thread that runs through it that Justice Scalia consistently calls judicial dignity. And let's play a, a little bit of him. He invokes it several times. But here's Justice Scalia talking about the interest of judicial dignity. Well, I mean, there's stuff we don't let judges do that we let other people do, uh, such as uh, it's at least a tradition. I'm not sure whether it's in any ethical rules, but let's assume it, it, it was in ethical rules that judges do not respond uh, in uh, op-ed pieces to criticisms of their decisions, all right? John Marshall did that, but he did it anonymously. <laughs> Let, let's assume that that rule is written into uh, uh, judicial ethics. Would, would, would that stand? Well, I, I think there is such an interest. We, we acknowledge that in our brief. I, I'm not sure. I don't believe that it suffices to uh, support the prohibition here for several reasons. First of all, no, no, but, but answer my question. Would that be okay? Would it be okay? An interest in judicial dignity. There are certain things that are infra dignitatem, as we say. So, Andy, I wonder if that gets conflated through the argument with these questions about judicial integrity, these questions about, as you say, what the appearance of integrity is, what folks are worried about, and these questions of corruption or quid pro quo corruption. Is it all just in the end kind of a mess because this idea is that judges are different except for when they're not? Well, I, I think this is a, a problem in, in the – once you enter the world of elected judges, there is a little bit of cognitive dissonance because our sort of mental picture of judges really is a little bit inconsistent with what has to be done in connection with a campaign. And as you know, the court uh, grappled with this question about uh, a dozen years ago or so in a case involving another First Amendment challenge to restrictions on judicial campaigns uh, where the question involved rules that didn't let judges talk at all about the issues on the theory that that was improper because it might lead to prejudging 
of issues that might come before them. And I think a general concern that that kind of electioneering was uh, inconsistent with the, the job that they were campaigning for. And Justice Scalia, writing the majority opinion for the court, rejected that argument and said, you know, we're having a campaign here. Once the state has decided to choose its judges through election, uh, there are some things that inevitably come with that. And Justice Kennedy, in his concurring opinion, was even more specific to say, once the state decides to choose judges through election, the First Amendment's protections related to the election process come into play, and they can't be dismissed simply on some theory that those rules are incompatible uh, with judging or with judges. And so I think Justice Scalia was trying to see whether the Florida bar was going to rely on that kind of interest, uh, which the court had pretty much found insufficient before, the idea that states could have, you know, sort of non-election elections for judges and that would be okay. And uh, my opposite number uh, really said no, and he said we're not relying on that argument, I think probably recognizing that it wouldn't carry the day. I suppose that in some sense, even though the court is relying on its on its precedent and its incredibly robust view of free speech, it has to have somewhere in its mind the advent of the multi-million dollar judicial race. You know, what's happened in the last couple of years, millions of dollars of out-of-state money pouring in, you know, vicious election ads, the kinds of things we simply never contemplated even 10 years ago. So it seems to me I'm trying to grapple with what this notion of dignity is. And I wonder if there's just a feeling that this whole judicial election system is quite grotesque and getting uglier every year. But given that we have to live with it, as Justice, as Chief Justice Roberts says toward the end of the argument, states that want to do it, they're going to do it. And if it's going to be ugly, it's on them. That feels like the sensibility that runs through a lot of the argument that states that want to have elections, it's going to get ugly and may get uglier. And that's just the way it is. Well, I think that's right. Elections are a competitive process. And obviously, you know, in an era of social media and television and all kinds of ways of getting messages out and reaching the voter, they can be expensive. And I do think states have to make a decision. You can obviously, there are many ways of uh, selecting judges that don't involve elections. But if you're going to involve elections, it seems to me it's awfully hard to say, we want elections, but we want elections that are uh, conducted according to uh, some special rules of etiquette that sort of conceal what's going on. I mean, I think this case is sort of a perfect example for that. Stepping back, if the judge knows who's asked, knows who gives, and can write a thank you note, it seems to me that there's a very strong argument that a rule that prevents the judge from asking is really creating the illusion of separation, but not the reality. And that that's maybe even more problematic than the reality because it communicates to voters that the judge is somehow or the candidate is somehow separate from the election process, but they're really not. You know, maybe, as you say, if people see the reality of what's going on, that might lead some states to say, well, that's great, but that's what we want in terms of choosing our judges. It could lead other states to say, you know what, if this is what a judicial election process requires under the Constitution, maybe we want to select our judges through a different means. But I think creating this sort of false illusion of separation really doesn't serve any kind of interest. 
I wonder if we could turn just for my last question, uh, because you mentioned, and I think it's so important that the Supreme Court is a court too. these justices know what it's like to deal with public scrutiny and public interest. But of course, the justices are appointed, they're appointed for life. And in a sense, their experience is quite different from somebody who has to run for election every couple of years. I want to play for you, um, I think, uh, a triple Lutz by Sonia Sotomayor, where she uses the word very three times in succession. Uh, Here she is uh, talking about judicial dignity and coercion. It's very, very, very rare that either by letter or by a personal call that I ask a lawyer to do something, whether it's serve on a committee, help organize something, um, do whatever it is um, that I'm asking, that that lawyer will say no. Isn't it inherent in the lawyer-judge context that people are going to say yes? Part of me thought, well, of course nobody says no to Sonia Sotomayor. She's Sonia Sotomayor. It's not the same. But I wonder if part of the question that the justice have to grapple with when they think about their own lives is that they are well aware of how coercive it is to have a judge ask you to do anything for them ever. But I I think the reason they're coercive is not who asks. It's because the justice is going to know what the person asked responded. You know, as I said in the oral argument, I suggested a hypothetical to the court where instead of the judge writing a written solicitation, there was a written solicitation signed as Florida's rules permit by the judge's campaign committee. But it started out by saying, Dear X, I know you're an active member of the litigating bar in our county, and I know you care about the quality of the courts. Uh, Judge Smith has personally asked me to serve on his reelection committee, and I'm soliciting contributions for that committee. And of course, as you know, Florida law permits Judge Smith to write thank you notes to those who give. Does the fact that that letter is signed by John Jones and not Judge Smith make it less coercive? I think absolutely not. And and that's why Florida's argument that the ban on the speech here adds something to the interest that it's asserting uh, just doesn't work. Well, let's then undertake uh, an amicus challenge to all try to say no to Justice Sonia Sotomayor at some point in our careers. Um, You don't have to do that, Andy, but I'm going to do it. Um, You have been listening to Andy Pincus, an attorney with Mayor Brown, LLP, who represented Williams Uly at the Supreme Court on Tuesday. Andy, thank you very, very much for joining us here on Amicus. Thank you. Now, before we move on to the next big case of the week, we thought we'd share something that was not captured in this week's transcripts. That's because Wednesday's public session included a long and disruptive protest that led to the arrests of eight audience members who staged a strange protest on the fifth anniversary of Citizens United that ended up with chairs being overturned and guards dragging them from the room. Displays of this sort are almost without precedent at the court, and yet one by one, protesters stood up as court was in session, saying things like, overturn Citizens United, we are the 99%, and money is not speech. By the end of the day, seven of the protesters were charged with making, quote, a harangue or oration or uttering loud, threatening, or abusive language in the Supreme Court, end quote. Back in the courtroom, as the last of the protesters was dragged off, Chief Justice John Roberts smoothly announced, we will now continue with our tradition of having open court in the Supreme Court building. And this is the point where open court 
and the transcripts begin. And so on to that second case. This was a civil rights case called Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs versus the Inclusive Communities Project. And a listener, by the way, asked us to cover this. The case turns on a question of how to apply the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And in its simplest terms, the question is whether someone who's bringing a claim under the Fair Housing Act needs to show intentional discrimination, in other words, that somebody meant to harm them and discriminate, or disparate impact, which simply means means that there were discriminatory effects. It's a very, very doctrinally rich area, and joining us to help work through the thicket of doctrine in this case is Sherilyn Eiffel, the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Welcome to Amicus, Sherilyn. Thanks for having me, Dahlia. So can you please set the table by helping us understand it first and foremost what uh, this case is about and what the housing law, the Fair Housing Act of 1968, involves? Well, the Fair Housing Act is, in in many ways, the often ignored of the major civil rights statutes that were enacted in uh, in the 1960s. But it's really one of the most important. It was uh, finally passed the week of the assassination of Martin Luther King, and in fact, was really passed kind of in response to his assassination and to the unrest that was unleashed in cities all over this country. Uh, King himself had talked about segregation as a cancer in our body politic, and many agreed with him that segregation was uh, deeply harmful and was perpetuating racial discrimination and that we needed a way to get at residential housing segregation. They also recognized that residential housing segregation was not just about individuals who refused to sell or rent their homes to African Americans but that housing segregation was the result of decades of practices and investments by the federal government, beginning in the 1930s when the FHA began uh, providing mortgage insurance, and the FHA required segregation, required that homes have racially restrictive covenants, you know, insisted that public housing be created based on race. So the housing landscape that we lived with in 1968 and that in many places we still live with today was actually something that was created by affirmative federal government policy and investment. And the Fair Housing Act was supposed to undo that. And so at argument on Wednesday was the the issue before the Supreme Court, which was not about the bad actors, not about the people who intentionally discriminate and who you can prove intentionally discriminate, but it was about whether or not you can bring a claim under the Fair Housing Act, first by showing that a housing policy or practice produces a disparate impact or perpetuates segregation. Uh, And the Supreme Court has been very aggressively pursuing cases that raise this question uh, for for some time. There were two earlier cases over the last four years that were settled before uh, they got to oral argument. Uh, This case was not settled, and so um, many of us in the civil rights community were watching very closely Uh, to hear what the justice's concerns are. And can you help us understand, because a lot of listeners probably can't quite suss out the difference between disparate impact and intentional discrimination, can you help us understand what the burden is if you're trying to show the one or the other? Sure. Last year, uh, you know, many people remember Donald Sterling, the former owner of the L.A. Clippers, for the awful remarks that he made uh, to his uh, then-girlfriend. Uh, many people also then learned that Donald 
Sterling had been the subject of several claims of housing discrimination uh, as a developer, that he made comments about black people and about um, disparaging black people and disparaging uh, Korean Americans and, um, and refusing to rent homes to people of various races. That's what we call intentional discrimination. That's the kind of discrimination that when you can find the evidence that someone has made those kinds of statements uh, is fairly uh, easy to prove. Um, disparate impact is different. Under the disparate impact standard, essentially you show the effect of a housing practice that appears to be race neutral. Let's suppose you wanted a really high credit score because you wanted to make sure that you were going to get your rent. Uh, and that astronomically high credit score resulted in uh, your housing essentially perpetuating segregation in a particular jurisdiction by ensuring that almost all of your residents, let's say 98%, are white. Um, under the disparate impact standard, having shown that, the burden then shifts to you as uh, the plaintiff to show that there is some other way that you could satisfy the developer's legitimate interest in getting their rent on time. So maybe the score doesn't have to be that high, or maybe they take Section 8 vouchers, um, or maybe there are other means that would not produce that same result. So if you see the Fair Housing Act as a kind of anti-segregation statute, it essentially tries to provide that conversation, that opportunity to look for an alternative race-neutral means that will um, produce an effect that doesn't perpetuate segregation. If your concern is legitimate and you can't do it by any other means, well, then you don't have to do anything. Um, so that's, the, that's essentially the disparate impact analysis. And uh, I want to play for you for a moment because I think it summarizes the heart of your argument. Here's Justice Breyer, um, Justice Stephen Breyer, explaining that this law has functioned with this implicit disparate impact test for a long time. This has been the law of the United States uniformly throughout the United States for 35 years. It is important. And all the horribles that are painted don't seem to have happened, or at least we have survived them. So why should this court suddenly come in and reverse an important law, which seems to have worked out in a way that is helpful to many people, has not produced disaster, on the basis of going back and uh, making a finely spun argument on the basis of a text uh, that was passed many years ago. Sherilyn, is that the heart of the issue here, that this law has been interpreted this way? All the courts who have looked at it have allowed for disparate impact. Congress had the opportunity to change it in 1988. They chose not to. Why are we fussing with it now? Is that the upshot of, of the argument by the civil rights groups? Well, it's one of the arguments, certainly. I mean, I mean it actually is an argument also about why the Supreme Court took this case. There is an unbroken line of interpretation of the Fair Housing Act by courts in which the court has found that the Fair Housing Act does include, um, you know, disparate impact as um, making a cognizable claim. It's also true, as Justice Scalia pointed out in the argument, that the 1988 amendments to the Act by Congress carve out two exceptions from the disparate impact standard. And Justice Scalia quite rightfully pointed out, well, you know, you wouldn't make exceptions to something if, if you didn't think that the something existed. So it's quite clear also that, at least, that Congress believed that uh, a disparate impact standard uh, is in the Fair Housing Act. So you have this kind of unbroken line, and then you have the agency that's charged with enforcing the Fair Housing Act, HUD, that also uh, endorses and believes and has uh, utilized the disparate impact standard. So you have the agency, the federal appellate courts, and Congress all lined up. Uh, and so the question, of course, we had is, then why would you take this case? No split in the circuits. But that's essentially the, the argument that uh, Breyer was making, and in some instances, Scalia seemed to be making as well. 
And you just said something that I want to circle back to, which is, boy, the court wanted to take this case. You mentioned they've twice uh, reached out to try to take a case like this. Twice the groups have settled. Are the groups absolutely terrified that the court is going to do something that's of a piece uh, with what they did with the Voting Rights Act a couple years ago? Well, I don't know if I'd use the word terror, but we certainly are deeply concerned (laughs) about it and have been for some time. As I said, no split in the circuits. Um, The argument was kind of interesting and probably went as well as could be expected. But, you know, the argument doesn't tell you everything, and so we still have concerns. The removal of the disparate impact standard or the harming of the disparate impact standard will really do a serious harm to what we're able to do under the Fair Housing Act. Sherilyn, one of the issues in this case turns on this question of Chevron deference or how much the courts have to defer to an agency and that agency's own interpretation of its own rules. But underneath that, there is just this question of how do you read the text of a statute? And here you had, in the civil rights groups had, a strange ally in Justice Antonin Scalia. Here he is asking the representative from the state of Texas why he doesn't simply lose the case. What hangs me up is not so much that as it is the fact that Congress seemingly acknowledged the effects test in later legislation when it said that certain effects will not qualify. You you know what I'm referring to. Yes, Justice Scalia. Well, why doesn't that that kill your case? I mean, when we look at a, a provision of law, we look at the entire provision of law, including later amendments, We try to make sense of the law as a whole. So I know that that was really the headline for everybody was, whoa, what's up with Scalia? Uh, What was it like sitting in the courtroom uh, listening to him? You know, we we know which side he's been on in so many of these civil rights cases. Uh, What could you tell about sitting and watching him about what was animating his, uh, it seems, enormous solicitude for your side of the case? Well, it was it was interesting because I think many people came in thinking that, you know, that to the extent that Scalia might be gettable, uh, you know, it would be on the agency interpretation kind of Chevron um, argument. But instead he was really talking about the text. He was looking at the 1988 amendments and he was saying, first of all, we read the whole statute. We read not only 1968, but we read 1988. And that, you know, the 1988 amendments um, make clear that Congress, at least at that time, believed there was a disparate impact standard. And so... So that was it, it, it was dramatic in that we were all surprised. Um, but I have to say, you know, there was not a kind of a, you know, uh, feeling of, you know, it, it's one. Um, you know, because he could very well have been playing out a hypothetical argument with, you know, with the uh, Solicitor General of Texas. And and it seems to me that he was an equal opportunity rougher-upper. I mean, I think he, he went hard uh, after both sides. So that's, that's right, probably. That's right. um, I wonder if the, the last thing I just wanted to ask you about is it seems that on a week where we're celebrating the legacy of Dr. King, you would pan back for us and talk a little bit about how yeah. this isn't just an obscure case about housing in Texas and tax credits, that it implicates a lot of other values, including education, Mm -hmm. including predatory lending, and even, I think you wrote an op-ed suggesting, even what happened in Ferguson. Yeah, I mean, I think people don't really understand in some ways how housing lies at the center of so much of what we do and talk about in terms of civil rights and in terms of opportunity and equality for everyone. Um, 
you know, in terms of educational opportunity and integration. I mean, think of it this way. We, we spent the last year, you know, it was the 60th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education, and there were numerous articles and studies and conferences and panels about segregated education and how much education remains segregated in the U.S. Education remains segregated because housing remains segregated. And, in fact, if we had integrated housing, we would have integrated public education. But we don't. Housing really lies at the center of it. If we think about wealth accumulation in this country and financial Stability. It is largely dependent on uh, on housing within families. So, if you look at a place like Ferguson, you know it's fascinating that New Yorker cover with the arch of uh, the the famous St. Louis arch, you know, painted in black and white to show the separation of that community. What it doesn't show is that the arch was created on land that was once a black community. And so all of the housing decisions that have been made at the macro level and then at the micro level, where when we talk about zoning, when we talk about Section 8, when we talk about all of these policies, they all result in segregation, and they all affect the economic, educational, and social condition of African Americans. So no, the Fair Housing Act is not, you know, something that's obscure or irrelevant. It is too often forgotten. Uh, you know, it's called the, you know, Northern Civil Rights Act because it really was meant to deal with segregated housing in cities all over this country uh, and was enacted in, in kind of honor of, of Martin Luther King's effort to address that issue. The case is Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs versus the Inclusive Communities Project. And joining us today was Sherilyn Eiffel, who is the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Sherilyn, thank you very, very much for joining us on Amicus. Thanks so much, Dahlia. One more piece of business before we let you go. Usually here on Amicus, we talk about oral arguments at the court, but there's this other little thing they like to do called handing down decisions. Well, on our maiden voyage on Amicus, we talked about a case called Holt versus Hobbs argued in October at the court. It had to do with an Arkansas prisoner who had religious reasons for wanting to grow a beard that was longer than the prison would allow. Well, 9-0, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed with Gregory Holt this week that he could, in fact, exercise his religious right to have a slightly longer beard than the prison would allow, and that the security concerns of the prison did not overmaster his religious freedoms. So 9-0 to zero for Gregory Holt, and we will keep you posted of more decisions in the future. That is it for this episode of Slate's Amicus Podcast. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts about today's and other episodes. You can always reach us at amicus at slate.com. That's A-M-I-C-U-S at slate.com. If you like what you've been hearing on this show, there's something else you can do to help us spread the word. Please drop in at our page on the iTunes store and leave a short review. It's the best way of helping other folks discover what we're up to. Thank you to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we will be back next week with another edition of Amicus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.